Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, perhaps listening on our wonderfully appreciated community radio syndicate partners or on our podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. I turn now to Stefan Hostetter. Thank you very much, Dave. Excellent read-in. That was uh, the most gravitas brought to the read-in in quite some time. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna jump right into the news. Uh, we do have Lauren on the line. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing super well. How about yourself? Ah, pretty good. I'm fighting a cold a little bit, so if I so if I sound a little grave, uh, a little gravelly, gravelly, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, <laughs> then I apologize. But but the weather outside here in Toronto is absolutely beautiful. Warm. Yes. March morning. Yes. Uh, how is how is the weather in Ottawa? It's you know what it's the same. It's sunny. It feels like sort of the beginning of spring. So it's it's put everybody in a really great mood. Excellent. It is good that we're all in good moods because <laughs> the rest of the show is incredibly depressing. So um, the we're so the, the way this is going to run out is we're going to have a couple stories, uh, a follow up on the on the cyclone uh, for, that that hit Mozambique last week. Um, and then uh, some conversations about uh, about climate action and white supremacy, uh, and then and then problems that are some some difficulties the oil industry is having. So that's a little bit followed of followed by a discussion of the food industry for the last two segments. Yes, exactly, the food industry, and then we'll have an interview uh, with Aube Giroux, uh, who is a filmmaker and documentarian uh, who's made one called uh, a film called Modified, uh, which premieres uh, tonight on CBC. Uh, and so we're talking to her in the last segment, but let's start uh, right from the top, Dave. The first cases of cholera have been confirmed in the wake of Cyclone Edai that hit Mozambique two weeks ago, killing at least 750 people in Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe, affecting millions and destroying 3,000 square kilometers, including crucial cropland that was about to be harvested. Hundreds of thousands of displaced people are living in camps with breakouts now of cholera as well as other suspected diseases, lacking clean water and sanitation. Others are living in schools, churches, and roadsides with nothing but one cup of fortified soy per family. The United Nations is looking for $280 million <clears throat> to help victims of EDI. Its food assistance branch, the World Food Program, is sending in, is sending in 600,000 people to possibly be scaled up to as much as 1.7 million over the next few years, since it is going to be a very long process of recovery for that region of southern Africa. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, quote, Every week brings new example of climate-related devastation. No country or community is immune. In response to the disaster, 350.org's Africa lead Landrine Interetze wrote a piece for The Guardian criticizing the tragically weak climate efforts being discussed for the continent as leaders gathered for a one-planet summit called by French President Emmanuel Macron at which Macron encouraged forest preservation and, president, and the president of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, pledged to establish protection for 10% of Kenya's forests. Dinteretze shows that these efforts are paltry to the point of absurdity, since new coal plants are being planned all over the continent, most of which are partly funded by the African Development Bank, <clears throat> which includes government officials from all over the world. Companies like Shell, Exxon, and BP are also exploiting new oil fields in Africa. He also points out that the entire continent of Africa is responsible for 4% of worldwide carbon emissions versus the 80% produced by the G20, and yet it is at much greater risk from climate change. Dinteretzi writes, quote, 
For us, climate change is not a future risk. It's already real. It's it's already a reality evident in wrecked families, lands, and livelihoods, and hopeless children and young people who have no choice but to seek a future by migrating. Some assume that increasing forest cover or granting new billions in funding to governments plagued by bad governments and corruption will prevent such disasters from happening, and solve the issue of global warming. This is an insult to people facing untold suffering in every corner of the continent, while new coal and mining infrastructure and carbon commodification continue to be allowed. He goes on to argue that international cooperation and funding must start by cutting support for fossil fuel projects everywhere, holding fossil fuel companies accountable, decentralizing energy supply systems, and supporting investment in renewables. Regarding the international school strikes, he writes, quote, "This organic mobilization is likely to continue and grow." Until real action is taken. Yes, um, man, uh, it's it's nice to hear someone be so right, uh, mm. even even on on a, on a policy, even when even when we are consistently sort of mis- misled. Uh, but I want to go to you, Lauren, first. Yeah, I feel like oh god, it's um, yeah. Immediately, we are the cloud in everybody's sunny day. Yes. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, um, I feel like one of the things that the, the whole situation with with Cyclone Ida sort of really brought to light to me and really like serves to reinforce is the idea that countries like Canada and, and other global or other wealthy nations in, in the global North really, really need to get behind loss and damage payments. It's something that's been debated at the international level at COP summits for the past, like since, since I like I'm it, for decades now, well not decades, but since, since the original Warsaw COP back in like, I can't even remember in, in the early aughts kind of thing. Um, and Canada and other nations like Canada continue to point to the international climate funding they put forward when it comes to adaptation. Um, but dollars for adaptation for, for global South countries simply aren't enough because they can't adapt fast enough. Um, so Canada really needs to get behind loss and damage funding because we have left these countries hanging out to dry and it, it doesn't matter if we give them money for adaptation because they, they can't, like I said, they can't adapt nearly fast enough to, to try to stave off disasters like what happened the other week. Yeah, yeah. And and, to, and I was reading an article recently, actually, about these, about some of the, some of the difficulties you have, even when you don't even, that would not be obvious to people, which is that one of the major current sort of compounding crises in these, in these scenarios is that when there's a flood of aid workers, um, they take up all the housing that's left. Oh my God! And so there's actually a so in these in these devastated regions where where already you know entire you know communities have been have been destroyed, the, the what's left of rental units the the prices are increasing because of the number of new people coming into the space, and so it is it is this it is a sort of compounding problem um, mm-hmm. that that. Without without the only real answer is 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 structural, right? The only real answer is to go all the way back to the beginning and, and to do what we can to make sure that these cyclones or these gigantic storms happen as less often as possible. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that's and that's really it. But I, I want to make sure that the second topic is sort of where I think it sort of ties us to back together. So Dave, I want to go back uh, to the the second topic. Yes. So Rebecca Solnit has uh, published an article ten days ago. Uh, also in The Guardian, titled, Why Climate Action is the Antithesis of White Supremacy. She starts by noting that the Fridays for Future March in Christchurch, New Zealand, came close to intersecting with the anti-Muslim mass shooting that happened on the same day. 
She argues that since climate action is based on the idea of global connection in terms of ecosystems, environment, and pollution, then that solving it requires collective global action. There can be no white supremacist climate activists since bigotry in all its forms comes from an ideology of separation rather than connection. She doesn't, however, mention class considerations, and I would add that we need to radically dissolve our current collective state of waiting around for our leaders to have a series of unprecedented epiphanies, quietly hoping they reorient themselves benevolently and holistically towards a sane intergovernmental stance and actually begin thinking differently about how we live. 350.org's global communications director, Hoda Baraka, told Solnit, quote, in a world being driven by fear, we are constantly being pitted against the very things that make this world livable whether it's people being pitted against each other, even though there is no life without human connection, love, and empathy, or fear pitting us against the very planet that sustains us, even though there is no life on a dead planet. This is why fighting climate change is the equivalent of fighting against hatred. Yeah, uh, and again, to you first, Lauren. Um, yeah, I, again, uh, I think I think the Solnit article was, was in some ways, liberal, like, like David said, in response to the Christchurch shootings, and something that sort of made me realize that this is, it, it's not a failing of the environmental community, obviously, directly, but, but sort of in our reaction to it. Um, a friend posted on, on Facebook, I believe, um, about how so many of those in the climate justice movement were posting a lot that day about Fridays for Future and about youth leading the way and how fantastic that was, but, but were really, really silent when it came to, to the Christchurch shootings. And, um, and, and that friend was, was exactly right. Uh, too often um, in the environmental movement or in the climate movement, we profess to be working from a justice-based lens and, and to be prioritizing issues of social justice alongside our climate work. Um, but then we're really, really absent from social justice spaces and discourses when, quote-unquote, like environmental issues aren't being directly referenced within those conversations. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where I think it makes me realize how can we ever expect people to invest their very limited time and resources in climate work if we don't first invest ourselves in, in their well-being at such a basic level with something <laughs> like when it comes to something so simple and, and so essential as, as fighting white supremacy. Um, so, yeah, how can we expect them to invest their time in, in climate work if we don't invest ourselves in their well-being and in them having time and resources to begin with? Um, yeah, yeah, sort of. Yeah, 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 and I, and to and to sort of jump off of a, a brief thing I had mentioned last week, um, the a couple of days after that Fridays feature, there was a, there was the the global action against um, uh, for migrant justice, um, and and one of the big things uh, highlighted you know there is 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 really the ability is is how connected well obviously you know we've talked about this forever how connection how connected migration is with. Um, uh, with 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 climate justice for sure, obviously, you know, um, and you see it all over the place. Uh, but but I don't think we totally fully understand the implications of that. In because in part, I don't think people fully understand how much uh, all how much migration is currently happening and the ways that people are being sort of segmented. Segmented, you know. I don't I don't think I don't think I think Canadians would be shocked to discover say how many migrant workers work in our work in our food systems. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember. I remember distinctly hearing uh, hearing a talk um, a, a, a couple of years ago that sort of was focused around the concept that food justice without without rights for migrant workers was 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 hollow. Um, and I and I think the same is true uh, for for really the sort of the, the more technological solutions 
for climate change um, without sort of dealing with the people who are currently, you know, really being affected um, or the people who are being, you know, who are, who are affected even, you know, 10 years ago um, by the same systems that are, that are creating climate movement or the climate problem, I guess I'll say. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. And so there's this interesting, uh, well, like there's, I think we've seen a, a, a shift, uh, and, and Lauren, you can say if you think you agree, over the past, you know, over my over my 15-ish years sort of paying attention to the climate movement, I think there's been a clear shift that's occurred towards this towards this move, and I think there's still a ways to go, but I certainly think that we're, we're a little bit removed from, I think, you know, where Macron would be the example of what, what mm-hmm. most people would presume would be good climate policy. Um, I think I think this sort of especially with the with the resurgence of the Green New Deal um, or or say iron in I think it's iron and steel that is in the West Coast the East Coast the West Coast, the West right now um, iron try, and earth iron earth there you go uh, and and those types of movements um, seem to be like uh, getting that sort of fact that you do need everyone um, and that and that these are all connected uh, but I think there's still but as you said there's still a, it's there's still so much there's so much harm in this world, that it's hard to find a way to, to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of trust building that has to happen. I know, like, like strictly from, like, a, from the standpoint of, of somebody who does work in, in organizing and, and quote-unquote activism, um, yeah, we, we need to do a far better job of, of building relationships and, and systems of trust, because otherwise it's, it's just a bunch of white hippies parachuting into communities and being like, hey, why didn't you show up at my climate march? Right. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, just to jump in. I have a really good example of that because I like I, I wanted to agree with everything you guys are saying and not to, to contradict it, but to add to it that sort of one caveat that how that is done is worlds of difference. What I mean, I'm going to use a really common example. I'm not trying to pick on the vegans. This is just a really easy example. <laughs> we had a bunch of climate vegans at a march that was organized a few years ago. Uh, I forget where it was, but it was organized by sort of affected groups, right? And so the organizers had done a lot of really good work to put frontline impacted communities at the front of the parade. It was very important. A lot of the larger organizations, a lot of these multinational organizations were at the end, right? And it was sort of like in order of people who are affected, right? Uh And it was very smart. And I think it was very, it was an example of the right thing to do. A bunch of climate vegans who went to that missed the point of what primary impacted communities means and Uh demanded to be at the front of the parade, a bunch of white hippies. So the point here is that like when we're doing this, we can't just say, oh, you know, and, and again, not that you were, or anyone else on the show was saying it, but right. just to make it really clear for the listener, when we're talking about like reaching out and building these networks, what we mean is community building first and then asking them, how can we assist you? How can we work together? Not going out and claiming those issues as our own. Yes, that's that's exactly. Yes. Thank you for reiterating that. That's exactly what we meant. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's 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 cover this last story just because we want to make sure we get to it, and then we can sort of wrap this thing up. So, <clears throat> moving on to the uh, oil industry, Nicholas Kuznets for Inside Climate News has listed three setbacks the Canadian tar sands industry has experienced this month, as follows: major work for the Keystone XL pipeline might miss the 20, 2019 construction season due to a court-ordered environmental assessment review. <clears throat> a new billion tar sands project from Imperial Oil has been delayed for at least a year to perhaps 2023 due to an apparently uncertain business environment. And Enbridge announced it will delay the opening of its Line 3 expansion by a year as well to 2020. This week, however, and this comes after Kuznets's article, the Minnesota regulators uh, that questioned the need for the project and originally stalled it have given their final approval. 
Still, we are seeing the lowest oil sands investment in 15 years due to activism, regulatory processes, and volatile oil prices. As well, certain major industry players in Canada are now coming out in favor of a price on carbon, touting Alberta's and the federal government's plan as being on the right track. In addition, uh, new rules, new, uh, a new ruling in the United States is temporarily preventing 300,000 acres of public lands in Wyoming from being drilled for oil and gas, which could have an impact on the 13 million other acres of public land that the Trump administration has opened up for drilling leases as well. The judge stated that the Bureau of Land Management, quote, did not adequately quantify the climate change impacts of oil and gas leasing. The leases will uh, now be reviewed under the U.S. National Environmental Policy Act of 1969, an act which may also require new drilling attempts in Alaska to look at cumulative greenhouse gas effects. Yeah, so this should just be uh, yet another segment on our ongoing please stop investing in the oil sands segment um, from both a monetary perspective and from an environmental perspective. Um, uh, but again, I want to go to you first, Lauren. Um, this just sort of made me think of, a, I, I, was, I was speaking in a classroom earlier this week um, about sort of an environmental issues at large kind of thing. Um, and the students that I was speaking to had just watched Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, or Naomi Klein and Abby Lewis's This Changes Everything. And, and the students were talking about what a bad job we do when we're speaking to and speaking about citizens of Alberta. Um, and, and, and I, with all of these cuts that continue to happen and, and as, as the oil industry continues to decline in this country and, and in that province specifically, we're going to have more and more uh, disillusioned and incensed workers who are losing their jobs and continuing to blame climate action because of it. And I think what this is showing me, at least, is that we, we need to do a way better job of, of speaking to these people with compassion um, and, and bringing them into the movement and bringing them into the fray and saying, we do care about you. We want you to have meaningful work. And unfortunately, this isn't the way to provide you with meaningful employment anymore. anymore. But we're going to we're we're going to try really, really hard to help train you and to help get you into new sectors and other sectors that will be sustainable and not just in the environmental sense, but in like the financial long term sense. Um, because these, like I said, these people are going to continue to lose their jobs because this is a failing industry. We know it's sunsetting, um, and and we can't just leave these people out to dry. Because if we leave them out to dry then the right is going to snap them up the way they've been so successfully snapping them up for the last decade. Yeah, and, and that strikes me as such a failure of leadership from from so many people who are responsible for the well-being of Alberta, right? Like it feels to me like not that, you know, it's, it's when it comes down to the sort of the, the environmentalists to be sort of planning ahead for Alberta's future economy because even, you know, because it's sort of within the leaders of the space can't even begin to fathom the concept that it would not be oil-based. Um, it feels to me sort of like a, we, how do we, how do we get, you sort of have to go straight to the source, right? You almost have to go straight to the workers and, and talk to them directly um, instead of sort of the attempts to sort of, you know, try to push the, push the political, um, the political class, shall you say, uh, mm -hmm. to, to take real action on this, right? Because, man, do they need help? Like, <laughs> like it's one of those things where it's, this is not, you know, everyone, anyone with a, well, it, to me, I, I feel like it's a, it's a direct statement of fact that at some point we, that the oil industry will collapse. Um, and, and the question is how soon, um, but it will collapse eventually. 
and and so the I, I, I'm sort of law at a loss uh, as to as to how to start how what is necessary to create this new real thinking conversation about what the future of Canada is that does not rely on this on on, on, on oil um, mm-hmm. yeah uh, but we're, we're so we're coming to the music break so I want to give uh, do you have any last thoughts or or calls to action or maybe just things about how nice the day is uh, Lauren <laughs> I guess things about how nice the day is. Um, isn't it lovely that we can still enjoy the sun without being terrified of, of, of being cooked to death? I don't know if we'll be able to do that in 40 years. That but is, today we can enjoy it. There we go. <laughs> enjoy the day. That sounds like that's a good one. Uh, enjoy the sun before uh, like the zeitgeist of our culture reassociates the sun with pain and death because it's <laughs> it's like we're, we're running away from it to stay alive in our post-apocalypse. I've been playing. I, Pax East was recently. I've been thinking about video games. I'm sorry. Thank you so, thank so, you so much, Lauren. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go now to our music break, which is uh, I wanted to play this last week, but it was a little too cold here in Toronto. It's it's a good day for this year in Toronto. So if you're not listening in Toronto and this seems like inappropriate music, I do apologize. Maybe <laughs> Maybe listen to the show next week. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. For as little as one dollar. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUTA nine point five FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or maybe on the podcast, which you can find on GreenMajority.ca, uh, and you can listen to anywhere, uh, including in space. We didn't give any time for that song to sink in. No, it's true, but it was a it was a peppy song. We always tease people with that. Just I'm, when it gets groovy, it's over. It's over. Yeah, it's wow. that, we just need slightly longer music breaks, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it was a positive, uh, upbeat song uh, <laughs> to bring us back up for just a half second before we go back down to the relative uh, dirt, shall we? say so uh we're talking about agriculture and factory farming in this segment uh and then uh, so what about we have so a long piece in the guardian by chris mcgreal outlines the social and economic devastation of rural communities in the united states caused by a decades-long push towards large-scale mechanized farming that has systematically choked out smaller farmers eventually allowing corporations to leverage power and monopolize the entire process of food production from genetics to wholesale we mention this, of course, because we'll be discussing uh, food in the final segment with the documentarian. Yes. So factory farming began in the 30s, uh, and by the 70s, the U.S. government encouraged farmers to go big or go home, and therefore go into high-interest debt, uh, growing commodities with expensive equipment, which led to a crisis in overproduction, exacerbated by Cold War policies of not selling grain to the Soviet Union. As small farmers went out of business, corporations gained more power and money lobbying state governments. Corporations are now able to obtain federally-backed low-interest loans to build massive operations that can undersell and kill all smaller competition and overproduce as much as they want because the government guarantees a stable price and so will subsidize that overproduction. As small farmers disappeared, rural communities lost their local businesses as well as health services like doctors and ambulances. What smaller farms do still exist have generally had to stop raising animals in favor of crops like corn and soy, often to supply to factory farms for feed, as well as corn ethanol, which uh, 
maybe turning the they're turning the tides in Iowa. I don't know. Apparently, Ted Cruz came out against corn ethanol. Anyway, that's oh, another that's another reason they're growing all the corn. Right. These uh, factory farms end up surrounding small communities and lowering property values since lakes of pig waste waft around with the shifting of the wind and clouds of unwelcome odors. With Brexit looming, bad American practices could also lead to the lowering of food standards in the UK as American companies look to gain access to the British market in anticipation of new trade deals after Britain pulls out of the EU. McGreal highlights one instance of the US ambassador to Britain defending US farming practices like washing chicken in chlorine. UK farmers may, may in turn have to lower their standards to then compete with US imports. American food standards, on the other hand, have long been hollowed out by corporate food production. Everyone by now, I imagine, has seen at least a few of those covertly shot videos of the hideous abuses of factory farms. Those abuses extend to workers as well, usually immigrants, who in some cases have to wear diapers to work in order to increase production by not taking bathroom breaks, are made to live and work in squalor, or even being raped by supervisors. Such was the case with a factory farm called Quality Egg, whose owners ended up going to prison after bribing inspectors in order to be able to sell old eggs as if they were fresh, and consequently infecting tens of thousands of people with salmonella in 2010. McGreal quotes Tim Gibbons of the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, stating, quote, The system has been set up for the benefit of factory farm corporations and their shareholders at the expense of family farmers, the real people, our environment, our food system. They control the rules of the game because they control the democratic process. It's a blueprint. We are paying for our own demise. It would be a different argument if it was, if it was just based upon inevitability or based on competition. But it's not based on competition. It's based upon squelching competition. Yeah, so there's a, a, a particular thing in the United States um, that is responsible, at least in part, for... Uh, many of the problems that we see in today's food systems. Um, I would say that the the more you learn about today's food systems, uh, the the more depressed you'll get. Uh, quite similar to the to the to the climate change movement. Um, or but, the most more sobered and grounded you become. That's also another way of putting it. Mm -hmm. um, but the the thing to understand is is that there's a in the states there's a, in the states there's a thing called the farm bill. Um, and the farm bill is this over overreaching huge bill that gets passed. I believe it's every couple of years. I think. I think they fill, really? I think they fund it for every couple of years. I don't think it's every year, but it might be every year. Um, mm. And 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 what it does is it, it it's it, it is responsible for many things. So one of the things it does, as as Dave mentioned in that in that piece, is it provides a certain guaranteed amount of money per bushel of corn. Uh, and a couple other pieces. I think it's a couple other things as well. But corn is the one of the ones. No that's matter how much corn is being. No produced. matter how much corn is produced, uh, it's a way. It was a way. It was billed as a way to provide stability of, of to you know to help the, the the farmers right to help the to help the small farmers in the in the in the rural communities to guarantee them that they could have some 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 money. Uh, what the problem with that is, once you've guaranteed a price for one particular commodity. Uh, there doesn't become any need to diversify what kind of commodity you grow. Um, and so and so it's created a culture of incredible monoculture um, of, of of trying to build up uh, the 
the corn uh, supply as much as possible. So this leads to like the last in the last segment, we'll be talking to Objeru, uh, who is talking about genetically modified foods. And this is a part of that conversation. Uh, but it's not just genetically modified foods. Uh, it is it is oversaturation of nitrogen cycles. Um, it is um, it is using mass amounts of pesticides, anything you can do to get the max yield, because the max yield is the way you would get is, is the way you get, are guaranteed the most money, obviously. Um, and there's no interest in, in diversifying your crop because that would take more work and, would, and, and you wouldn't and you don't have this guaranteed income. The, 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 the thing about business is that predictability is very important. And so, and so, to create predictability within the food system, um, this is a part of. They are farmers are incentivized to actually consistently create corn because corn is the most consistent. They can understand how much money they're going to get back from it because they're guaranteed income. But Stefan, I keep hearing that the invisible hand of the market is the best way to run an economy. <laughs> well, arguably, this is actually this is fundamentally against that, right? Like this is what's not what's, what's amazing about this is that this is a a relatively strong like this this bill is is is, is bipartisan, and I'll get to why in a second. But it is bipartisan, but it also um, the conservatives side of it, yeah, you know, like these are these are businesses basically getting direct money from government. Government is just basically giving these people money. If we're gonna do stuff like that, we might as well subsidize the oil industry for billions of dollars. I mean, geez. Oh, wait, we do. Dun, 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 um, but yeah, no, this is the thing, right? Like, and what's so, so this is what's happened. So, what's amazing about this is that this subsidy um, uh, or, 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 the guarantee to purchase the, the for some of my money or guaranteed amount of money they get back basically floods the market with with corn uh, and corn itself is also a kind of difficult um, crop to grow it's a, it's a relatively it does need a serious amount of nitrogen and it, it is a relatively in oil intensive and in carbon intensive crop to grow um, and of course the, the way in growing these monocultures you do a couple different things and one of the things is that you end up really not doing any really good soil maintenance and so the soil also degrades and so the topsoil degradation we're seeing that is a different story for another day uh, is is a part of this this whole story, but the the, the, the one get, what's amazing about this is that there's, so there's too, too much corn, and then where does the corn go? Well, the corn now ends up in your food. It is it is why glucose fructose and in corn syrup is in everything. It's because you know it's it's basically what's amazing about something like a like. Uh, Coke and pop products is that they've basically found a way to that everything that goes into their into their drink is massively subsidized. They're either just pulling water from random wells uh, from from wells around the around the, for you know pennies on the dollar, and then they're adding it to corn that's also basically pennies on the dollar, uh, and they're putting it together with a little bit of t- flavoring and then a massive marketing budget. Um, and it and th- and it's and they make billions of dollars. Um, and and it's all on, it's all being paid for and subsidized by by us, uh, and then they don't even have to. And then you then and then you recycle your your pop can, uh, and then we we have to pay for that too. It's it's it, every single part of this business is being subsidized, and it is it is truly killing us. Yeah, no, sorry, just you 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 almost almost buried the lead there, which is the idea. These things have almost no nutritional value, and they have almost no value whatsoever. But then we fund them through the government to support them. And then people buy them because they're cheap. Yeah, right, exactly. But they're not. We subsidize them. It's just that you paid for most of it at, on your taxes, not at the store. So when you go and buy a can of pop for a dollar, it's actually four dollars. You just paid the three dollars on your taxes. Well, it, it's it's actually rally, it's like thirteen cents. We just gave them all the money beforehand. Oh, but the jittery joy of a good beverage. 
I'm just saying if they actually had to sell Coke for $3.50 and we didn't pay and subsidize any of these industry in our thing, they would all disappear by tomorrow. And that's a really important point. That's not just a sarcastic right. side comment. That's the whole ball game right there, folks. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and they, you know, they had previously made this with sugarcane. They can do that. They just, this became cheaper. Right. And, and, and then this is also, this is like, it was to, to sort of, to circle back one last note of it. It's also quite tied to factory farming because the ability, because how much of, of animal feed is corn products. You know, it, 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 the whole, the whole system is connected. Um, and in some ways born out of this sort of this massive subsidization of corn. And did you want to briefly mention the bipartisanship of the farm bill? Yeah. The, so to go back to that, so what's, the reason why you can't not get it, why, why the farm bill gets passed every single year is because the bill is so big that it covers both uh, food stamps and these subsidies. Um, and so basically everyone, whether they're rural or it was designed so both rural and urban constituencies uh, would have a direct stake in it. Um, and so you actually can't, and so whenever it gets blocked, millions of people go without food. Um, and, and you can't pass it without these other things. And so it becomes this, it's this whirling dermit, uh, of, of, because of it includes mess. both farm subsidization and what is it? Was it and, food, food stamps? stamps? Food stamps. Yeah. So, so everyone who relies on food stamps needs this bill to be passed too. Um, and so, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bill designed to not be able to never not be passed. Um, it's it's bipartisan it, in the sense that the Republicans are holding food stamps hostage for corporate subsidies. Well, like not in so many words, but, uh, like rural, like, cause I'm sure there's some Democrats in the, there's definitely Democrats in, in rural, in rural places that also support this farm bill. But, but this is, this is the problem, right? Um, and it's, a, it's a problem we're also seeing, I've seen increasingly in Canadian politics with large bills, omnibus bills that cover all these different problems. Right, exactly, yeah. And and, and, you, and how are you supposed to you know, cut those apart? Which, which can't be, yeah, which can't be rationally dissected right. because they, they're necessarily bipartisan. Yeah. Because, uh, or, because they cover so many different problems. Yeah, or they, exactly, they're they're so huge. Um, so let's, I want to make sure we get to, to, to Elizabeth Warren's sort of uh, conversation about how to tackle at least some of these problems uh, because I want to make sure we get to them with the music break. So Massachusetts Senator and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren has unveiled a plan to tackle the problem of corporate consolidation in American agriculture. She has recently been campaigning in Iowa, which lost uh, almost 33,000 farms from 1982 to 2012. She took aim at companies like Bayer Monsanto, whose merger was recently approved by U.S. regulators after having been announced, been announced in 2016, a decision that she wants to reverse. In any case, that merger between Bayer and Monsanto is already backfiring against Bayer, one of the largest chemical and pharmaceutical companies in the world, which has lost 35% of its stock value since August when Monsanto's weed killer Roundup was found to have caused a person's cancer, and such legal defeats have been cascading ever since. Just recently, the stock price dropped 9.6% in a single day after another court came to the same conclusion about another victim of the weed killer. Another pesticide, other pesticide residues, residues have recently been found to be present in 70% of produce sold in the U.S. even after washing. And in Canada, the pesticide lobby recently produced a documentary series ostensibly about the daily life of small farmers, but intended to engineer public perception of pesticide use. But this is just a small aspect of what Warren is fighting in Ottawa, where contract farming has pushed all the risk onto smaller farmers who have to sell themselves out to huge companies on which they are forced to remain dependent, having no control over the food production process themselves. The Des Moines Register lists uh, Warren's plan as follows. 1. 
and the, 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 I'll, just, I'll just say before I say this, the, reading this list itself just shows you how screwed up the process itself is. <laughs> you don't even realize the issues that these things are tackling. So, one, appoint federal regulators to scrutinize mergers in the agriculture industry and reverse those that are anti-competitive. Two, break up agribusinesses that control too many aspects of food production. Three, allow farmers to decide how to repair their own equipment. Four, no longer force farmers to give a portion of their sales to corporate research and advertising. Five, end contract farming. Six, require beef and pork producers to label where their livestock was raised and slaughtered. Four, for, uh, seven, forbid any foreign entity from purchasing agricultural land in the state for farming. Yeah, so this is, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Like, that list is terrifying. You know, like, I love how number three, allow farmers to decide how to repair their own equipment, sort of implies an entire problem that, that I was not aware of. Yeah. That, you know, and I can, I, I, I imagine this, the problem is that there are only a few of these, of these massive producers of, you know, this is probably actually very similarly tied to the right to repair movement we see in tech, you mm -hmm. know, in that as, as things get more complicated, it gets harder and harder to repair things. And so these are probably things that, you know, like you have a giant tractor um, that costs you $200,000, or actually, don't no, believe me, probably a million dollars. I have no idea how much farming equipment costs. <laughs> um, but, but, then, but, then you, but then you're probably, you know, you're not allowed to repair it because, and you have to hire the person to come in, you know, and that costs you a whole extra amount of money. Um, you know, it, it, it's a, and we're seeing this sort of, this vertical integration across, uh, across everywhere. You know, it, where, whether it's the fact that, you know, now Amazon simultaneously is selling you groceries is you're, you're, you can watch Amazon Prime like, you know, it, Amazon Prime will sell you an ad that you will then that you will then buy uh, and then you will show up further at, goods from Amazon. Goods. Yeah, like it's we're seeing this vertical integration, um, which is sort of like what that means basically is if I am. Uh, if I'm one part of a business, you sort of buy up the the part of your you're both suppliers and um, and who's above yeah, you, everything from the obtainment of the raw materials to the eventual wholesale of the finished product. Exactly, the yeah. entire process. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so and so this whole th th we're seeing that even within you know within within the 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 agricultural movement um and you know for the fact that we're now seeing things like the fact that monsanto and bayer were purchased together or are now, mer now merged means that you have monsanto crops that can are genetically engineered to be resistant to specifically bear new bear pesticides um so you are now buying crops that require you to buy a certain type of pesticide from a certain manufacturer um and you get yourself caught in this loop um, where where you can't where where you can't escape and and then and then you're seeing all over the world this this problem with when you get many when you get GMO crops um, you can't even there's these 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 laws about how you can't actually keep the seeds from the plants because that's not your own IP and you know there there are literally there are farmers being sued uh, for for keeping the seeds. Uh, of of the regime of, of, of or or GMO even crops. if a seed just happens to waft into their land, they can still be sued if those if those seeds uh, just happen to be growing on their land. Yeah. Which is what which is why they are, they've actually been producing seeds that uh, can only last a generation, so right. they can uh, still make money off selling the seeds again. Yeah, exactly. And and this is the problem. We're we're getting stuck in these loops uh, where where one company has total control over the entire uh, the entire marketplace, basically.
Sorry, just really quickly, because this is sort of now we're now into my current wheelhouse outside of the environment as well. So I'm looking for work as a web developer, and uh, voice technology is very high demand right now. That and machine learning, and one of the job I won't say the company, but one of the things I applied for recently essentially was designing uh, voice technology to essentially mix ads into your like Google Home or your Alexa, Alexia, so that essentially, like theoretically, this is not what this company was doing. Because I'm trying to stay away from <laughs> publicizing them. That's not why I brought this up. Um, but the point is, like, imagine like an ad, you know, you're listening to a, a podcast on your Alexa, which is owned by Amazon. And then an ad gets played through the Alexa system, which they get revenue for. Then what this company wants to do is add voice control. So you can say, Alexa, buy that. And it goes to your credit card and then it automatically gets shipped to your house by Amazon. So literally from hearing about the idea to getting it sold to you to getting delivered 100% of the customer experience in this case is Amazon. And this is, this is, this is not like future tech. This is like, you're going to see this next year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and that's exact example of this type of thing. Cause like when you look at Amazon's it, very quickly, we're going to go to music break in half a second. Um, but when you look at Amazon's, uh, even Amazon's business model of, of how money, how much money it makes, it now makes most of its money through fulfilling orders, not even receiving them. They, like they've now, now actually being sort of the third party retailer of, of actually the deliveries and the sailing part is, is, is their biggest part of their business. Um, and this is where the, this is where this is, sorry, this is where the, where the grassroots left and right can both really come together of, uh, of being anti-corporate control. Like, yeah, like the, the, the how, how, how much can you have to, to stop the, uh, you know, like, and, and what is, what I will say about Elizabeth Warren's, many of Warren's plans, uh, is that it, one of the major tenets of most of these things is actually to break up, um, uh, is to break up these large tech companies and and obviously agriculture and, and actually start trying to a major a major problem that she's laying out is how much the very very large businesses are now sort of uh, have have gone around antitrust legislation uh, that would normally have broken them up if they were in more traditional businesses. Uh, but that's well off the topic of of agriculture. We're coming back with agriculture uh, with an interview. Uh, with Aube Giroux, uh, who has a CBC documentary coming out tonight uh, at 9 o'clock. We'll come back right there. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CAUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful radio syndicates. Uh, quick, uh, before we go to the interview, a uh, quick fact check, uh, live fact check from one of our listeners. Uh, thanks. Shout out to Josh Fernandez. Uh, Amazon's biggest now actually makes the most money on cloud computing services, uh, no longer actually driving things around. Uh, so cloud computing services is now the biggest one. Um, but uh, that's even more vertically integrated and so still sticks to the whole theme. Um, but now on to our interview. Uh, oh, by here you are. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and so, and so, you have created a documentary called Modified. Uh, it's an award-winning uh, documentary, um, and it premieres, if I'm correct, tonight on CBC Docs uh, at 9 p.m. Is that correct? That's right. Yep, across Canada at 9 p.m. in 9:30 in Newfoundland. Right. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, amazing. Uh, and so, uh, I have a couple questions, but first, uh, just to give our listeners a general overview, uh, what's the documentary about? Sure. So um, it really it's a documentary that starts from a, a very simple question, but it's about a complex topic. So, and, and that question really is why um, here in Canada do we not have um, genetically modified foods labeled, um, GMOs labeled on our food products? Um, so, so that was a very simple question, but it really took me on a kind of a ten-year journey to to make this film. 
Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that that ten year journey actually because it was uh, it was such a, a you I guess when you normally hear these uh, or when you get into these sort of documentary documentaries that are that are really focus on something like you know trying to get you know things labeled or or these sort of you know I, I want to say little guy versus corporate giant kind of themes um, uh, they don't. They, they sort of they often miss the personal aspect, and I thought that this documentary actually really touched deeply on how much important really food was to you, and then your relationship with your mother. Um, and so, like, what, what is your what's your relationship with with food, and, and how did that sort of come through in the film? Yeah, so um, I was very lucky to grow up with a mom who um, grew a lot of the food that we ate. She had a huge garden, and so from the time I was really little. Um, I just had a very close connection with where my food came from. So when the first GMOs um, came on the market in the late 90s, um, my mom had a lot of questions and concerns about them. And um, and eventually, you know, I, I also became very interested in the topic. So it um, became a shared passion for us and something that we would um, often talk about. And initially, the film wasn't um, actually meant to be quite as personal as it is. Um, but over time, um, it, it kind of evolved that way. And, and that really was based on people's um, reactions when they saw the film, that they reacted very strongly to the personal um, story of the film. So, so we ended up going in that direction more. Yeah, and it, you know, it is it is truly uh, affecting, you know, um, in, in part because I think everyone everyone sort of uh, a understands uh, or appreciates the relationship between uh, between a mother and daughter, but also the the your your combined interest in in food. Um, it's so rare, I think, for an agricultural uh, uh, documentary or, or film to focus so much on the final product. Um, you know, of the cooking aspect mm-hmm. of it, the sort of the real, and, and I think that whole thing makes it everything. I, I, this is a sort of my own uh, thought about how uh, how disconnected we are from from our own food systems these days, and and to sort of show from farm to table is almost a revolutionary act in itself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I but I want to sort of get onto the onto sort of the some of the different themes of the of the of the of the show or the documentary. Sorry, um, and the and what first one is is how many more pesticides are required uh, caused by GMOs. That's an interesting angle. It normally, GMOs are in some ways filmed as, or framed as a way to, to reduce the need for pesticides, but you've actually uh, come into the realization and sort of shown through the documentary that, that that is not always the case. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a very complex question, you know, because um, in some ways, yes, GMOs have reduced um, certain types of pesticides, and in other ways, they've increased um, the use of other types of pesticides. So, um, so it's a question that, you know, you can say both are accurate in a sense. Um, but to go into it in a little bit more detail, um, so essentially there are two types of, of GMOs that we have on the market. Um, one is called it was what's called an insecticide-producing GMO. So an example would be like BT corn, where um, an insecticide has actually been engineered into the plant so that every cell in the plant produces um, this insecticide. Um, so those types of crops um, have, in some cases, reduced the amount of insecticides that um, farmers need to use because the insecticide is produced within the plant. So the other type of GMO is what's called herbicide-resistant um, GMOs. And so an example would be Roundup Ready soybeans, where you know the soybeans can be sprayed with the herbicide Roundup, 
all the weeds in the field die as a result of the Roundup, but the soybeans survive the, the spraying. And so, um, and that's actually, um, that type of GMO is, uh, is the majority of GMOs that we have on the market. So in Canada, it's close to 100% of the GMOs that we're growing in Canada um, are resistant to herbicides. And what that has meant is quite a drastic increase in the amount of herbicides we're using, primarily Roundup, but now also other herbicides such as Dicamba and 2,4-D, um, which GMOs were kind of had kind of evolved to try to avoid those types of pesticides. But now, because we are becoming resistant to the Roundup, um, companies are developing new generations of GMOs that are resistant to um, some of the older, more toxic chemicals that GMOs were trying to avoid in the first place. Yeah. So it, it, a lot of people, when they talk about GMOs, they talk about a pesticide treadmill, and that's what they're referring to is that, um, you know, as as insects evolve, as weeds evolve, um, as weeds evolve, you know, they require um, di- different herbicides to, to kill them, basically. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It, it remind it's very similar, I guess, to the sort of the the overuse of antibiotics within uh, within other parts of the food system or within within human bodies, uh, where you use them until one is resistant, and then you need to switch on to something else. Um, exactly. And and and, and 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 this is what's what's so timely about this documentary is is how much it does directly tie to some of these these news stories coming out right now that we say we just covered around them. The, the merger of Monsanto and, 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 and Bayer, um, or actually takeover from Bayer of Monsanto, um, because of how the fact that, you know, now you have the, the people making the crops and the people selling the pesticides as one, as one organization. Um, and so the, and so you can very obviously see the internal incentive to, 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 to increase pesticide use, you know, why on earth would a pesticide company want to create crops that would not need their product? Um, it sort of yeah. creates a whole different front problem. Um, but another thing you, you cover, uh, in the, in the documentary is, is, is seed patents, uh, or, or, or sort of the problem that we're having trying to get, uh, patents get to, uh, the different farmers are having to get, to get in, to be able to like actually own the, the crops they're having. Uh, so you can talk about that briefly. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, patents have existed, um, for a long time, I think, uh, First started in the 1930s, um, you know, patenting of, of plants. Um, but it was really when GMOs were introduced that it kind of um, really unleashed a floodgate of, of patenting of seeds. And um, so, you know, pretty much all the GMOs that we have on the market, um, at least here in Canada, um, they are patented seeds. And what that means is that the farmer has to sign a technology license agreement with the company. And, and within that agreement, you know, they have to promise that they won't um, save or replant um, the seeds. And, and, you know, a lot of farmers would say, well, you know, we, we benefit from these seeds. They, they make certain aspects of farming easier for us. Um, and, and that is true uh, in some cases. And, and so the issues are very complex. Um, but I think that what GMOs have... Um, have really meant is that um, there's a there's um, a much more of a dependence on these big um, agrochemical companies and you know pesticide producing companies that that have really consolidated. Where you know 30 years ago there used to be um, so many different seed companies and and now you know they've all consolidated into essentially four or five major ones 
were, of course, very familiar with Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. Um, but, you know, these companies have a tremendous amount of control and power um, over the, you know, the seed market and also over our, um, you know, our government and our regulatory agencies. And that's something that the film really raises and that um, I'm personally very concerned about is the lobby, um, the, the, the incredibly powerful lobby that is behind some of these companies. Yeah, yeah. I want to. Uh, that's a good segue into the sort of more general food uh, system because what I found interesting uh, about about one of the things I found interesting about the documentary is it actually it, it feels like a, a a it's like you have this one sort of your experience going through this thing, but what you're sort of shining a light on is it, I, I sort of at the end of it felt like almost a breakdown of our food systems. You know, it, it almost felt as if you sort of from this one angle you're sort of shining a light into the giant food system, but it sort of highlighted so many little different problems, um, uh, or, or or not little gigantic problems um, that we're sort of all managing to sort of I think we're all managing to sort of wa- to come out in the wash a little bit just because at this current moment we're able to get so much production um that that yeah. is sort of that is sort of overwhelming the 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 the, the market uh, or the overwhelming us from seeing actually how frail the food system is um and and i and you at the at the end of the documentary talk about your experience sort of in some ways removing yourself uh, or being able to remove yourself from this sort of more generalized system by becoming a farmer yourself uh, and so i'm sort of curious how you see uh the the food system as a whole yeah, and you've raised some really great points. Um, I mean, it's really hard in, a, in an hour-and-a-half film. Like, there's so many things you want to cover, and then you really have to be very selective about, you know, you can't include everything. So I shot, you know, literally hundreds of hours of footage, um, and you really have to pare it down. So there are so many more issues that I wanted to address with the film. But, um, like, you said it very well, but I think, you know, GMOs, um, they're just one part of a much bigger issue around um, our agricultural system. And to me, it, it just seems so obvious with studies that are coming out almost on a daily basis that are showing, you know, um, a global catastrophic decline of insect populations, not just bees and butterflies, but all insects, um, you know, dead zones caused by fertilizer runoff um, in our oceans and lakes. Um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions caused by agriculture. I mean, agriculture is one of the biggest contributors of greenhouse gas emissions. So there, the the problems caused by by our current way of growing food are huge, huge problems that are affecting the entire planet. And so, it's not just about GMOs. You know, it goes much further than that. GMOs are just one piece of the puzzle that is kind of enabling this um, system of agriculture that we have at the moment. But I mean, my vision for for a, a more hopeful world, a, a more sustainable agriculture, is really we need more small farms, and that's how it used to be. There used to be um, so many more small farms, and gradually over the last you know forty or fifty years, um, our policies have made it so that um, we are encouraging bigger and bigger farms. Um, and huge monocultures, and I think that that is 
is not the right direction that we should be taking. And, and I hope that that's something that is relayed in my film. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, and as we as we covered, uh, you know, there are politicians in the states also trying to noting that that loss and, and trying to diversify in those ways. Um, we're, we're running up to the end of the show, so I just want to make sure that we have a chance for you to sort of how can people if they can't catch it tonight, how can they catch it in the future, um, and and how can they support this film? Sure. So yeah, if, if you can't catch it tonight, um, it will be online on on CBC's page. So it will, it will live there and people can stream it um, at any time for free. It is a shorter version of the feature-length um, version of the film. The feature-length version, which is about twice as long, um, that will be available on DVD very soon. We're hoping um, starting next month um, via the film's website. And it will the feature version will also be available soon on iTunes and you know, to stream online. So um, the best way to, to find out about all that is to go to our um, our website, which is um, modifiedthefilm.com. Amazing. Uh, so, and, and to give you uh, sort of the last word on the show, uh, if you had uh, maybe a one or two sentence uh, call to action to, uh, to the audience uh, here, what would it be? Sure. I mean, support local organic agriculture, I think, is the number one thing. And if I can just put in one other slide, would be to um, contact your elected representative, contact your MP, invite them to watch the broadcast tonight, invite them to watch the film, and you know, ask them for, um, for GMOs to be labeled because it's something that pollsters or over 80% of Canadians want. So um, it's just basic transparency in our food. Amazing. Thank you so much, Obe. Uh, this has been Obe Giroux, uh, the documentary filmmaker of Modified, which will be out today uh, on CBC uh, Docs uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 Newfoundland time. Uh, thanks so much, uh, and have a, of a wonderful green week, everyone. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, so uh, just final note for our time-shifted listeners. Today is Friday, March the 29th, so if you're listening to it after that date, please go to the website to uh, to get the links to where you can find that information. Greenmajority.ca is the other place you can find that as well. Have a good green week, folks. It is finally nice outside here in Toronto. We hope it will be there shortly if it isn't yet where you are, and we'll talk to you all real soon.